Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, where we discuss digital transformation and emerging technologies in healthcare. Here, some of the most innovative thinkers and leaders in healthcare and technology talk about how they are driving change in their organizations. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to my podcast. This is a special episode. This is our 50th episode of the Big Unlock podcast, and it is a real privilege and honor for me to have as my special guest today, Aaron Meary, CIO of uh, University of Texas at Austin uh, Dell Medical Center. And uh, I'm really thrilled to have him join us today. Aaron, thank you so much for setting aside the time and welcome to the show. Patty, thank you very much, and congrats on your 50th episode. Thank you very much. So, Aaron, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, just tell us a little bit about UT Health and the Dell Medical School and the main focus areas for your institution. Yeah, so thanks for, again, having me and having the institution on your uh, call. So, UT Austin, uh, one of the top uh, global universities in the world, um, about five or six years ago, decided that we really needed our own medical school, our own teaching institute, our own clinical enterprise, um, and really help Austin and help Travis County and the state of Texas out by bringing out some of the world's best physicians uh, through Austin. And so uh, that's what we've been doing. Our goal here has been about, number one, first and foremost, putting out the best medical students possible, right? Prepared to enter into residency and whatnot. Number right. two, having a clinical practice really grounded around value-based care and the principles of community and community impact. And then three, what UT Austin's known best for, which is, which is research. How do we you know, do some game-changing research in genomics and sequencing and whatnot, and uh, really take this to the next level. So it's uh, every aspect of a academic healthcare delivery network that you could possibly imagine, and then some, and then now you throw in COVID into the whole situation, and it grows even more so. Right. And Aaron, I know you're a thought leader, and you've written and spoken extensively about advanced technologies and digital transformation in healthcare, and you are a practitioner of, of the same uh, principles in your institution. I want to start by asking you about uh, the acceleration of uh, digital transformation in light of COVID-19, as you mentioned. We are seeing, obviously, that uh, healthcare is going virtual, telehealth, and all other forms of virtual care, digital front doors, and so on. What are you seeing in your conversations with your peers across the healthcare industry as the high-priority initiatives for digital consumer engagement in a post-COVID-19 scenario? Yeah, great question, Patty. So a couple things. Number one, if you look at it from a, let's put our CIO hat on for a second here. There's a couple things that are priority. Number one, ensuring a smooth delivery of service, right? So that all the way from the clinician experience, the patient experience, that entire continuity of care virtually should be flawless, right? So that there's no hiccups in terms of workflow, orders, medical record, whatnot. So that telehealth experience has been one that we continuously refine, even though now our practice is majority of it is telehealth, although we're slowly upticking the in-persons again. So to the degree of it, it's been about stability, uh, quality of service, execution, 
agility. So there are new workflows. I mentioned earlier, we're big believers in value-based care. That's a team-based approach. Uh, so how do you use a virtual lobby to be able to do a pre-staging of a virtual care team where you have a social worker and a musculoskeletal worker and a pain management worker all together visiting, and then they're able to meet with the patient as a team. Those kinds of, of virtual workflows we've been innovating on because we are not going to stop our principles, uh, which is we believe whole hog and, and value-based care. So that's from a CIO perspective, making sure that that your health system is able to make that that leap and suddenly go from in-persons of in the dozens to in-persons of, I mean, uh, over the virtual telemedicine into the hundreds, if not thousands of sessions daily. So you have that component. From a policy perspective, what we're seeing is this question mark from CMS, you even saw last week with Seema Verma, uh, stating publicly that it's her intent or her desire to want to leave in a lot of the statutes in place that reimburse at uh, even parity level. So I think that as that decision comes out, it's going to obviously affect the landscape because if they're not paying and reimbursing at a, at a level that's sustainable, uh, health systems will have to make some tough decisions. So to the degree of it, I think right now we're in that period of the two. Most of my peers that I'm speaking with are trying to keep the lights on, making sure that they are able to shake and bake to whatever the requests are that are coming in and ensuring that their staff, uh, be it their remote or in person, are feeling secure and safe and whatnot. And so we're able to deliver medicine remotely without an issue. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of things, and I want to dig into it a little bit. And in terms of virtual care in a post-COVID-19 context, some of the things that uh, I am seeing through our work uh, in my firm is the emergence of newer forms of uh, healthcare delivery. And a couple that come to mind immediately are contact tracing, as an example, and COVID-19 apps in general. And of course, it's kind of hard to unpack what a COVID-19 app means when there are so many technology providers out there saying they have a COVID-19 app, but then contact tracing is something that is a little more tangible. People can kind of relate to what that means. Could, could you unpack these things a little bit for the benefit of our listeners? You know, What should one you know, be thinking when somebody comes up and says, look, I've got a COVID-19 app that, I, that can help you or a contact tracing app that can help you. How are you going about it? Yeah, so great question. Let's talk in generalities and I'll talk in specificity also about what we're doing here with UT Health Austin. So in generalities, when I mention a COVID-19 app, I applaud the vendor community for trying to pivot, especially a lot of startups out there and say, how can we apply our platform, our tech, our algorithms towards something related to COVID-19? The majority of the market seems to be leaning towards uh, temperature indicators, whether you're home monitoring for temperature checking, whether you are able to baseline an individual based on questionnaires to say, you know, are you potentially symptomatic because, you know, I don't know, you are out on Memorial Day weekend on the lake without a mask on around 10,000 people. Okay, well, then you're probably high risk, catch COVID, right? So a lot of what you're seeing on the market are symptom checkers, home monitoring uh, type platforms, algorithms. I've seen RTLS vendors make a pivot towards try to say, hey, our Wi-Fi RTLS system can now track your patients that are positive where they are and ensure, you know, that you're, you're maintaining quarantine procedures, that sort of thing. What we did here at UT Health, Health Austin was a couple of things. Number one, Austin Public Health asked us to partner with them formally. And via that delegation of public health authority, we were able to work doing contact tracing on behalf of the city of Austin. So we stood up an app that does that, right? So we have over 200 or so contact tracers all working remotely. 
calling into a central call center, and then are able to access this app that we partnered with a startup out of Seattle to deploy quickly and robustly. And they're able to enter in information, you know, where was Aaron? Did Aaron go to the barber? Okay, who was at the barber? Let's call them. Are they symptomatic? That whole lineage of contact tracing. Believe it or not, Patty, contact tracing has been done for quite some time on numerous disease states. COVID is not anything new, but right. this is the first major disease state I've seen a public drive towards how can we digitize contact tracing. And it's difficult, right? It's difficult because the CDC is constantly evolving their data sheets based on what they learn. Obviously, more that we learn from the, from the disease, the more types of data they want and specificity collected. So we're constantly having to evolve our product that we put on the market here uh, to help. But I just read some stat last week that we've successfully done one third all the contact tracing for the city of Austin. And if you think about it, this is the 11th largest city in the country, that's pretty darn impressive, right? And we did this here at UT Austin on behalf of the city of Austin. So, so to the degree of it, there's a number of components that go into this, but overall, I'd say from our position here, what we're doing is number one, symptom checking. Number two, we have our drive-through COVID-19 testing stations. Number three, we're doing contact tracing, as I mentioned. Number four, we are doing home monitoring. And then we're also doing nurse triage, right? Because a contact could quickly say, hey, I have symptoms, I can't breathe. We need to triage them so we can escalate that to nurse triage and then immediately either enroll them in home monitoring if it's manageable or ask them to present to the emergency department as, as soon as possible. So we've been phenomenal at getting in front of this and really uh, wrapping our arms around it and taking it very seriously in partnership with the city because UT Austin has those kind of resources to bring to uh, practice. Yeah, and I think you make a very important point in your comments, which is this uh, emerging public-private partnership, if you will, you know, public health agencies partnering either at a state, local, or a federal level with uh, the private sector. And we've seen some, you know, we've seen some efforts to do that at a national level. We've seen that Google and Apple have gotten together to develop this API, which they're making available to the federal health agencies uh, at national level. And then we've, you know, we've seen examples, including yourself, and of uh, state level or city level initiatives where public, you know, private partnerships are getting a handle on this whole, uh, you know, contact tracing and uh, and controlling the spread of uh, infections. Of course, there are also some other examples where, you know, it's not working as great. And so what is really, you know, I'm curious to know from your experience, Aaron, what is the one or two, what are the one or two things that are truly important for this kind of a public-private partnership to work effectively, to ensure that there is public safety, ensure that there is accuracy in all of the testing and tracing and everything that goes on, and that uh, at the end of the day, the desired outcomes are met. What are the one or two things that came out of your experience? Yeah, so I would say these are the top three things for anybody navigating uh, these hurdles. Number one, uh, full transparency, right? That is partnership at a fundamental level of what are you doing? How are you doing? What are our shared objectives? What are our shared populations that we're going to focus on? Uh, case in point, UT Austin's really focused on the indigent care for the city of Austin, which has been fascinating to learn about, much less help them uh, get that done. So making sure that there's transparency, there's constant communication between myself and my counterpart with the city of Austin, the CIO for the city of Austin, who's excellent. Our data teams are constantly talking to make sure that the data is being shared appropriately, securely, and that there, again, there's full transparency in all dashboards that we're building. And so that the data that we're putting out and that they ultimately publish for the public has validity, right? That there's data provenance behind it and data lineage that, that anybody can say, well, how do you know how many tests you've given? Okay, well, this is right. where the is from, right? So those kinds of things are very important because that's what takes transparency. Number two is governance, right? Making sure that 
just because somebody wants something doesn't mean that your two teams and two organizations go out and just do it, right? It's got to be for something. It's got to it's got a benefit objective, and particularly when you're dealing with public health, you have to have a hyper focus on ensuring that these are the objectives laid out by the mayor, by the governor, or whatever else as appropriate. And then last but not least is internal communication. What's happened with COVID is that you have a number of practitioners that are logged in from home, using Zoom, using whatever. And so communication and you know having stand-ups routinely with them to understand what are the shifting landscapes, what's going on. Uh, here in Austin, we're experiencing a boom of COVID-positive patients now walking in through emergency department. Are there new protocols? Are there new uh, surveillance programs we need to stand up based on comorbidity? Are these a uh, different demographic that we need to be able to focus on a little differently? Uh, we had a discussion this morning on how, to, if we needed to start monitoring neonates, what would we do? How would mm-hmm. we handle that? Uh, not right. saying it's an issue, but if, right? We're trying to get in front of potential questions that come up. So those are the kinds of things you need to be doing, right? Is right. making sure that there really is that hand-in-hand approach and that there is no one institution blazing down a trail inadvertently uh, because of a lack of communication. All great points. Uh, just to round out that that topic, uh, what has been your experience with regards to false positives and false negatives in uh, in your application and your program with the uh, city of Austin? Yeah, so I think the false positives and whatnot really stem from the types of testing that are available, whether it's serological, whether it's swab, whether it's saliva, all of those components. I think that the general public is learning more about the the accuracy of those various COVID-19 tests. And subsequently, if we get the data back right from the lab saying, Aaron is COVID positive, but it was a saliva versus a swab or whatever, you Mm -hmm. know, looking at the level of validity around that. And so that has downstream effects, right? So, So really, as the general public learns more. We're learning just as fast along with them because we now have more experience. The world has more experience with COVID-19. And so the CDC modifies their, their approach on a lot of things as to what's going to happen there, which, which affects our day-to-day planning. But that's really where the rub's been. It's not been around contact tracing or issues with that. I'm actually impressed with the general public's willingness to partner. I would say the consensus of folks out there, if you call them and say, hey, Aaron, you may have been exposed when you went to the grocery store over the weekend. Do you recall who you've been around in the past 48 hours? We haven't had people like, you know, spaz out and say, you're invading my privacy or what's going on. Generally speaking, people want to help and people want to partner and people want to do the right thing. So that's been really positive. Yeah. You mentioned uh, public's cooperation in these programs, which is, of course, extremely critical for you to get a handle on uh, the uh, the spread of the uh, infections. In general, you know, when you talk about uh, virtual care models, and going back to the earlier commentary that, that you gave us about digital transformation initiatives, virtualization of care, telehealth models, and so on, what are you seeing as the public's acceptance of those kinds of uh, care delivery uh, modalities, if you will, are they comfortable with it? Are they happy with it? And are they just tolerating it in the short term because there's no other option? What are you seeing with your populations? Yeah, what's important is to understand the population you're trying to serve. So I'm gonna give you a few examples here. Like I mentioned to you earlier, one of the populations we take care of, beyond obviously the commercial population, is indigent care. Right. Uh, the disconnected is another terminology I've heard uh, used in epidemiology sense. Uh, people that maybe don't have access to a smartphone or, or a stable home or resources to care that maybe live in a food desert, all of those social determinants of health type issues. So we've really had to, to spend a lot of time to understand that population of the kinds of modalities they do want to engage with. 
Specific to Austin, what we've noticed is a few things. Number one, uh, the majority of the indigent care, again, population, English is a second language to them. So how do we put apps in front of them that they are that they feel more comfortable engaging with? In our case, as predominantly Hispanic-speaking individuals, that so we put out a Spanish version of the apps, right? So there's an iOS app that's also in Spanish. There's a Droid app that's also in Spanish, and a web, a responsive web form that's also in Spanish. This is where they can they can upload their own contacts. They can do their own home monitoring. They can engage with the app. Let us know who they've talked to. All these kinds of dynamics, uh, which are very important when you're looking at contact tracing. And then, of course, consent, right? We spend a lot of time getting consent from people, and that's explicit consent. So they under, do you understand that you are sharing with me, you know, your family members at home and who was around you, you know, and you're consenting to tell me that, and you're, you're giving me permission to go ask those questions on your behalf. Right. So we never want people to feel like, even though this is a public health crisis, that they don't know what's going on. And those components of, again, transparency and putting applications and tech in front of people they understand and seeking first to understand has been the acceptance criteria uh, for the general public. And we see most people, like I was saying before, because we're taking the time up front to do these things that are natural to them, uh, we're not forcing them to jump through hoops or we're not forcing them to have to not understand but yet still share information, people want to help. We have not seen that that pushback. So those are those are important components to understand. And something I found interesting about the population, a data fact for people out there building apps, is that a lot of the indigent care actually do have a smart device of some sort. They're just disconnected from the app store. They don't have a way to download an iOS app or a Droid app, right? Or they don't have a data plan. They just simply go free Wi-Fi to free Wi-Fi as they walk around the city. So it is interesting that other types of uh, connected behavior that we're seeing. And I think there's an entire ecosystem at some point that needs to get in front of this. Perhaps this is what you could do now with Elon Musk's uh, Starlink that he's putting up with the ubiquitous coverage of uh, Wi-Fi. Those yeah. kinds of industries are going to crop up to help connect the disconnected. Yeah, it's very interesting. We're doing some work with a, a health system in New York City whose population is very similar to what you're describing, indigenous population, very diverse ethnically and linguistically. And so the you know, you mentioned the need for multilingual apps. And then you also mentioned that you know, everybody has a smartphone, but they don't necessarily have access to the app store because they live in either uh, bandwidth deserts or they just don't cannot afford it uh, or, or for whatever reason. And so a related concern that seems to be arising is the notion of inequalities in access to healthcare by virtue of these inequalities in uh, access to bandwidth, uh, as an example. And so again, that's a whole separate topic, and uh, hopefully, you know, all of that will uh, be addressed uh, through initiatives like the one you just talked about, where you're giving people access to bandwidth so that they can go and download their apps, the apps that they need or are being prescribed to them by their physicians and so on. That's right. And I would also say one more thing is that we have phenomenal teams of clinicians and family medicine docs that are helping us to do all of this and staff the lines and whatnot. And so if they encounter somebody, say, in a food desert, Right. They'll also set them up with a connection to back to local and state resources that help identify maybe meals on wheels, other components, other programs out there that maybe they didn't have access to and or even know about. So you can use your COVID-19 programs to help populations of people beyond COVID. Right. In our case, we're taking it. We're giving them resources and access to state resources that they didn't know existed and say, look, you don't need to sit there in hunger or you don't have electricity. There are there are ways we can help you navigate these things. It just takes a focus on public health and it takes a it takes your team caring 
I mean, I'm very proud of the UT Austin team. Right. And it seems to me like you know, everyone I talk to, they've kind of come a long way in the last few months in the sense of, okay, we were in March and we really didn't know what hit us and we had to scramble to get things in place so that we could take care of the infected population and at the same time make sure that our our regular population doesn't deteriorate in their conditions and so on. And I'm going to come to that in a minute. But it also seems to me like over the three or four months, a tremendous amount of knowledge sharing has happened and people are kind of learning from each other's experiences and really come a long way in terms of understanding how to address a situation like this in future. But of course, we're a long way away from the current crisis itself. I mean, we, we don't have a vaccine yet and so many other things. But it seems like we're much more informed today. I'd just like you to comment on what has been the kind of collaboration among your peer groups across your peers, you know, CIOs in other health systems who are doing similar things. Do you have a forum platform where you share ideas, best practices, and so on? So, yes. So there's been a couple of things. Number one, across all of UT system, these are all the CIOs of UT Southwestern, MD Anderson, myself, others, you know, we are all constantly collaborating on what our institutions are doing across the state, right, to take care of Texans and uh, things that we're learning, whether it's data, whether it's processes, whether it's how do you set up thermal imaging cameras, the whole nine yards. Across Chime, there are numerous discussion boards and information sharing uh, forums where CIOs are, are talking. There's a group of about 40 of us that converse via email, asking general questions, asking how do you do return to work, thermal camera discussion, like I mentioned, data, data provenance issues, all sorts of things. At a federal level, I also am a congressionally appointed member of the HITAC. There's been some phenomenal data and idea sharing exchange uh, between CMS or just across all of HHS, honestly, uh, with the payer side and the uh, provider side to understand what is happening boots on the ground and they make modifications. I recall very vividly there was a couple of emergency discussions with the HITAC in March and April in which I was very vocal. I mean, you can Google this and look at a couple of modern healthcare articles where I, I stated pretty emphatically that CMS and others needed to help us. They needed to help us immediately. We were Our cellular lines were getting overrun. Uh, there was all kinds of issues. If you recall that time frame, people thought what was happening in New York was about to happen across the country. And to the credit of HHS, they mobilized, right? Whether it's helping to make sure that data was more quickly readily available and normalized, whether it was making sure that CMS was relaxing telemedicine rules as fast as possible. I'm not saying that that high-tech meeting made that all happen. I am saying the right people were listening and they committed to, to making change. And so I give a lot of credit to the administration for listening and for, for making changes that really benefited boots on the ground. So those are the kinds of things that are happening. It is not a vacuum. It is not happening in isolation where you're sitting at a hospital and you don't know who to talk to. The whole healthcare community has rallied together to really get behind this. And I haven't found one person unwilling to help or dive in or lend a hand if you need it. Yeah, in a way, the pandemic has accelerated the future. And that's kind of what uh, Ed Marks, my co-author for our upcoming book on healthcare digital transformation, that's the point we made, which is that, you know, consumerism and technology, we're already changing the way healthcare is being delivered and being accessed and, and experienced. But now the pandemic has accelerated all of that by, by an order of magnitude is what it seems like. Would you, would you agree with that in general? I would agree with that. I would also say that consumerization has always been here. The problem with healthcare is that is an industry that has always been focused on reimbursement first. And that's from the early days when, you know, in the, when, when Medicare and Medicaid first came out in the mid-60s. And so that just became the focus on how do you submit claims for, for payer reimbursement. And so because, you know, the thought was that telemedicine was never reimbursed at a parity level 
or whatever, that there was never going to be mass adoption, but yet the consumers actually want it. I'll give you a specific example. We do net promoter score scoring for all of our patient encounters on top of age caps and all the things you have to do. Um, but we want to know real time, you know, you know, how was your experience? Would you recommend a friend? And then tell us something, you know, free text form about your experience that we should know. You usually get the whole, oh, traffic is abysmal in Austin or parking was hard in the garage. Okay, I'm a city. I can't change the traffic situation in Austin, Texas. I wish I could, right? Beyond healthcare purposes. Yeah. But, and our NPS was always in the 80s, right? Which is really good when you're looking at net promoter score. However, since we've gone to telemedicine, our net promoter score is now in the 90s. People don't have to put up with those headaches of traffic and parking anymore. So consumerization has always been a desire. The problem is the healthcare industry just wasn't going fast enough for what the general public wants. And so my hope is now this COVID situation, as bad as it is, has highlighted the fact that you can be thought blazing with healthcare and people will adopt to it. They're not stuck in the 1980s. They want to engage with you via a FaceTime communication or whatever. They want that. I want that, right? Yeah, I don't want yeah. to drive in unless I absolutely have to. Yeah, well, this is a segue to another topic that I know that you've been passionate about, uh, the whole notion of data interoperability and how we're set up today versus how we need to be set up for the future. You mentioned CMS. Uh, it's a good thing that they finalized the interoperability ruling back in March, and so we're going to hopefully see uh, an improvement in data interoperability and uh, all the information blocking practices and all of that stuff. But having said all that, the way data is structured today within our primary repository, a system of record, if you will, which is the electronic health record, the pandemic has exposed some serious limitations. And uh, this is what I hear everywhere I go. What are your thoughts on that? What should we be doing now from a data, you know, data interoperability and just data management uh, standpoint, knowing that we have what we have, which is a current electronic health record landscape, but our needs are now evolving very, very quickly. Yeah, so great question, Patty. And this is a very, very deep topic. So without getting overly technical and starting to talk about standards and, and other formatting and, and data issues, um, let's talk about in generalities. Number one, we are still learning about COVID, particularly in public health, we're still learning what data elements we need to track. This is why the recent issues cropped up about race and ethnicity mm -hmm. um, and, and gaps of care, because not everybody mandates those fields to be filled out or we're not capturing it accurately. So I would say number one is we need to get a general baseline feel for public health criteria. What are the standards that need to be tracked every single time? Is it race and ethnicity and, of course, age and comorbidities? What is it? We had the same issue with Zika a few years ago with pregnancy. Uh, we weren't able to track uh, people who were pregnant because pregnancy status at that time was not mandatory. Now, now it is a required field. So there's these things we need to learn. So I would say, number one, a general baseline of definitions and data capture uh, for public health that everybody must adhere to, right? So that's standards formation. And you can put it through the USCDI process that was developed under 21st Century Cures um, right. that we did on the HITAC so that we can adopt those criteria. Number two, I would say that we need to make sure that we don't forget other types of care across the care continuum. Right now, LTACs, rehab, nursing homes, SNFs, they all need to be on some sort of digital system. They're not. 
Obviously, with the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, uh, monies were allocated towards digitizing the inpatient and acute care market. Not a bad thing. That's where people are, are the sickest. I totally get it. But we have to go back and make sure those, those other care locations are just as digital and just as regulated as the inpatient facilities are. So we have a continuum of discrete data. And number three, better partnership between public health and the private sector. Again, I'm blessed here to be with Austin and UT Austin, which have a great relationship. I don't think the same exists in every locale and every city. So how do you reboot and have those types of didactic discussions so that in the event of a pandemic, in the case of COVID-19, there'll be future COVIDs. How do we make sure that those tenants we spoke about earlier are in place of transparency and governance and communication? You've got to have all those components working together. It's not just standards, but that's how we're going to advance interoperability. I do think that 21st Century Cures Act, that is law, as you just mentioned, was finalized, uh, I believe it was beginning in March, should help, but we still have a long way to go because just because I put the tool in front of you doesn't mean it's going to be used appropriately. Well, Aaron, uh, we're coming up to the end of our time here, and I had just one last question related to the innovation ecosystem and their role in uh, driving healthcare forward, especially from a digital transformation standpoint. And I know that as a part of Chime, you are also launching a series of uh, webinars related to digital health innovation. Tell us a little bit about what are you trying to address there? What are you seeing in the marketplace and what are you trying to address with the with this new series, uh, what's the expectation we should have? Yeah, great question. So I'm a big believer in partnering, especially with startups and, and young companies, on how do you add in a very agile manner, deal with a problem that you're facing, whether it's COVID-related or not. There are companies out there that are hungry to want to innovate with you. And not that the large companies are bad. We have great partnerships with major companies here too at UT Awesome. But it's sometimes a lot easier to partner with a startup and solve a problem. And so this innovative series that Chima started is around that. How do CIOs partner with a startup, a young startup, to solve a specific problem? And the, and the session that we have coming up is specific around contact tracing and home monitoring. And the whole issue of COVID I just spoke about you know, when we were faced with this in March, the request comes to you as a CIO, hey, we need to do home monitoring on patients. What do we got? How do we build it? Do we build it in RedCab? Do we build an app ourselves? Hey, we need to do contact tracing. We don't want to do it on Excel. Do we want to build an access database? I mean, some crazy request you get, you're like, stop, right? I can do the same old thing over and over again and not really advance the problem. Or I can partner with someone and really knock this out of the world and really benefit society as a whole, which is the route we went. And so, again, that's what this series is about, is about thinking different, stepping outside your comfort zone and feeling OK to break a few rules, because it's, at the end of the day, you have a much more robust delivery of care and uh, care processes. And uh, also your physicians are a lot happier and your patients, too. Yeah, I mean, never really got to talk about remote monitoring. And that's a whole different maybe another podcast sometime uh, sure. sometime in the next few weeks. But Aaron, uh, you know, we're going to unfortunately have to kind of uh, bring this to a close. But thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to participating in these webinars that you're doing with Chime. I think it's going to be very interesting for those who are listening. I, I would strongly recommend it. And of course, it's got Aaron you know, moderating them. So it's got to be interesting discussion. Well, Aaron, thank you again for joining us. And I look forward to being in touch. I appreciate it very much. Thanks, Patty. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Subscribe to our podcast series at www.thebigunlock.com and write to us at info at thebigunlock.com.